Chapter 1 The Real Raw Deal Understanding Blade and Shank Use I tell you what, I scared to death of a knife. I'd rather have a motherfucker shoot me. Duke Steel Side Shank Incident 42-2 Time of Occurrence Day Duration 10 to 15 seconds Perspective Eyewitness Charles was arguing with an inmate from another cell block when the other inmate put his right hand beneath his coveralls and drew a shank. A six-inch length of sharpened sheet metal cuttings bound with duct tape close to his body, cocked it next to his ribs, and lunged for Charles's belly. Charles threw his hips back and his arms high to the sides as he hopped back to avoid the stab. He recovered in time to push the knifer back by his shoulders. As he pushed off, Charles turned to run. He should have looked back before running to the stairs. The knifer flipped his shank over to the ice pick grip and pursued at full speed as the other inmates gave way. As Charles hit the top step and began his descent, the knifer plunged the shank into his upper back. He did this three times before Charles hit the second step. The two continued down the stairs, ever slower. On the second and third step, Charles took between five and seven additional stabs to his shoulders. On the fourth step, Charles sustained three to five additional stabs as his legs began to buckle. When they hit the landing, Charles collapsed and was stabbed about five more times. At this point, the knifer looked the eyewitness, who was standing on the landing, square in the eye and calmly slid his shank beneath the coveralls and walked off. Within seconds, all the inmates in the cell block, except for Charles and his assailant, were detained and searched by the guards. The above encounter was related to me by Raphael, a martial artist who has survived gang fights, bar brawls, street fights, prize fights, and knife fights. He has worked as a doorman, an enforcer, and a cornerman. Of the dozens of tough, experienced street fighters I have interviewed, he is among the most experienced. He doesn't know how many fights he's been in, but someday, when I'm done picking his brain, I'll tell him. And is certainly the most versatile, holding advanced ranks in six fighting arts. I've trained with him, drunk with him, broken bread with him, and once kept him from stomping a teenaged wannabe G into the asphalt. Now why have I devoted an entire paragraph to describing the toughness and experience of this eyewitness? Because he was scared breathless and wilted under the glare of the prison knifer. Raphael will fight anybody for almost any reason, but he's not stupid. He was looking into the eyes of a heartless predator and didn't waste a moment dreaming up a martial arts fantasy defense. That's a lesson I won't forget. Raphael has gone empty-handed against a knifer, and he knew not to go there with this guy. To be able to avoid or possibly fight such people, we must first know how they operate and how to spot them. The knifer should be out of prison by now, and I could run into him, or someone like him, on the bus tonight. If so, I won't even have to look to know he's there. When the junior gangsters in the back of the bus stop chattering like so many birds in the jungle, I'll know the predator is there, sitting in the left corner of the back bench seat. 
when he slinks out the back door, their adolescent threats will start filling the bus again. Did Charles have a chance? Raphael and I determined the time frame and approximate number of stabs based on our reenacting the encounter in his living room. Time perception is one of the first things to go when you are that close to serious violence. Since Charles didn't die and there was no legal action, the number of wounds was not made known. The stabbing of Charles actually represents two distinct attempts at weapon use. The knifer initially used his weapon from a ready posture with a knife retracted in the rear hand, as do most knifers. Had he cornered Charles, he would certainly have persisted with his tactic. Charles's flight triggered a more predatory action in the form of the running backstab, a crude but effective tactic. The oddest thing about this incident was that both parties were the same size. Usually the man with a weapon is smaller or at least shorter. Charles, like the knifer, was large and athletic and initially did well once the knife had been drawn. However, he knew he would be cut and did decided to buy his 30 seconds until the guards showed by running. This was a really good choice. He only made two mistakes. One, a shanker is more likely to give chase than a typical knifer. Since the best way to stab on the run is with an overhand grip, a shanker who adopts this grip is clearly indicating that he will give chase. Charles should have looked back and either fought he had done all right when the knifer was using a more practical grip or altered his course. 2. When fleeing from an aggressor who appears to have approximately your level of athletic ability, Charles and the knifer were described as identical in build. Never descend a flight of stairs. Climb the stairs or run in circles if need be, but never give your pursuer the option of diving on your back or dragging you down by the shoulders. Having made these two points, we, as self-defense students and teachers, must refrain from criticizing a defender such as Charles who chooses a reasonable course of action but fails to make two small calculations while under the kind of pressure most of us have never faced. Did you know about the significance of the overhand knife posture in the context of chase? Did you know that running down the stairs was a trap? Consider Charles's struggle. In the context, he was forced to live it, to learn from his misfortune. Don't assume that some knife sparring experience or the use of a specialized fighting stance on your part would put an attacker of the type that Charles faced at a crucial disadvantage. Approximately one of every ten violent acts involves the use of a cutting or stabbing weapon. Although such weapons are among the most deadly and are the preferred tool of the lone male felon, in their practical application they are the least understood of all weapons. To comprehend the use of an edged weapon, we must grasp their mechanics and potential. What are the options available to the blade or shank user? What are his limitations? Numero uno is the fact that a person in possession of an undeployed weapon is not armed. When I interview a man who engaged in a fist fight but did not draw his folder, I classify him as unarmed. Knives don't cut people. People use knives to cut people. An object does not become a weapon until it is deployed. I have analyzed 
edged weapon encounters I have experienced, witnessed, and collected by the following categories. Weapon, use, and posture. Weapon. The first way I decided to slice this grisly pie was to break down the action according to weapon type. This permitted me to rate, relate the uses, use postures, injury patterns, and legal risks associated with the deployment of various tools. When it comes to the study of real blade fighting, tool is the appropriate term for almost all weapons used in combat. Virtually all edged weapons are misused household or workplace tools, not deliberately crafted weapons. This remains true even when one considers the major knife category. Just about every piece of steel that is used in the commission of a violent crime or is grabbed to turn the tide of a brawl would be classified as worthless junk by any self-respecting knife enthusiast, dealer, or schooled knife fighter. I have grouped edged weapons into four broad categories, in part so I can stop using the term edged weapon. Edged weapon types 1. Razors, straight razors, box cutters, utility knives, and loose razor blades. 2. Shanks. Any improvised stabbing implement, including pens, corkscrews, ice picks, and objects used to pry open paint cans or shellfish. 3. Knives. All folding knives and daggers, kitchen cutlery, and sheath knives, smaller than a bowie. 4. Swords. Antiques, replicas, bowies, machetes, and sickles. Top quality weapons are rarely used in real fights. Even such marginal quality weapons as my 20-year-old bowie, which I use to cut down trees and butcher hams, accounts for less than 4% of the weapons identified in this study. The incidence of higher quality blade use is statistically zero. Now let's put a price tag on the most common weapons in the knifer's arsenal. Box cutter, a buck twenty-five. Utility knife, one ninety-nine. Pencil, fifteen cents. Three and a half to four inch folding lock blade, five dollars. Perhaps the only redeeming quality demonstrated by your neighborhood knifer is that he is a conservative investor. An illustration is captioned, the straight razor is the weapon most likely to be used to inflict a pressure cut, a slice. It is the blade preferred by black women, cost approximately $3. Another illustration, the aptly named screwdriver, the Darth Vader of Shanks, is the preferred weapon of the impoverished male sociopath, cost approximately $1.99. The butcher knife is the weapon of choice of the white working class woman, cost approximately $4.39. A classic bowie knife is classified for this study as a sword. The use of a bowie has not been documented. Swords and sword-like knives are used almost exclusively by white males at or near their home or vehicle, cost approximately $40. Edged Weapon Trends my study of violence in general, and of armed encounters of all kinds, has led to the identification of three trends that are present with use of all weapons, but are most pronounced in regards to cutting and stabbing weapons. 1. Material. People are being butchered with junk. 2. Menace. The more menacing a weapon appears, the more likely it will be used to threaten instead of injure and the more likely the brandishing or use will bring legal penalties. 3. 
fear of failure. A weapon user who fears that his tool will not menace effectively or that it will fail him in combat is more likely to act with extreme ruthlessness and less likely to pay a legal penalty for his crime, so long as the act does not produce a body. The following table demonstrates my methodology and seeks to answer an age-old question. You be the judge. Is the pencil mightier than the sword? The pencil was deployed seven times in seven injury attempts. The armed party was injured zero times and suffered legal consequences one time. The antagonist was armed zero times out of seven, was wounded seven times out of seven, and was killed once of these seven attacks. The sword attacks numbered 11. There were six injury attempts. In these attempts, the armed party was injured only once and suffered legal consequences seven times. The antagonists were armed in three cases, were wounded in three cases, and suffered death in one case. This comparison raises as many questions as it answers. The situations? 100% of the pencilers were acting as the aggressor. Only six of the 11 swordsmen were acting as the aggressor. Aggression is the second most important advantage in any violent altercation, experience being the most important. State of mind? Five of 11 swordsmen were drunk. Look at the injury attempts. None of the pencilers were drunk. The deaths? The pencil through the left eye with a full-length sharpened number two pencil. Sword? Decapitation with a katana, a samurai sword. The perpetrators? The swordsmen were all adult males. The pencilers were primarily adolescent males. If I accomplish nothing else in the pursuit of this knife study, I should at least manage to elevate the status of the lowly, lowly twerp, that half-pint wannabe with his hands in his pocket and his nose out of joint, as an armed antagonist. Setting? Seven of eleven swordsmen were in their home or on their porch. Six of seven pencilers were in high school or behind bars. The sword is used primarily as a home defense weapon and as an ego booster by eccentric drunken men. By contrast, the pencil is a device employed by a stealthy or opportunistic aggressor within a restricted setting. Confrontation versus predation. Use. Holding. Holding a weapon during an altercation without showing it or bringing it into play is a rare but viable option. I was once attacked by a large drunk who began shoving me around. When I got my feet planted, I decided to fight, but didn't want to make it a knife fight. I drew my utility knife below his line of sight and began to throw it across the floor so that neither one of us would be tempted to use it. I had been working with it, and it was sticking out of my belt where either one of us could get to it if we went to the floor. As I was beginning to toss the blade, my attacker started to bear down on me with a clenched fist, and I automatically flipped the blade over to the reverse grip and held it under his beer gut. 
I knew I would cut him, despite my desire not to. We stood eye to eye as he growled obscenities and cocked his right hand for a cross. I simply met his stare until he lost his nerve. He didn't even know I had a blade ready until a bystander mentioned it afterward. I believe I won that stare down because my eyes reflected the confidence I felt based on his impending surgery, which would have begun when I ducked his big right hand. He was shaken by the eye contact and soon apologized and withdrew the fight challenge he had issued earlier. There's also a lesson to be learned from the drunk's failure to realize that a blade was inches from his intestines. This is an obvious case of stress-induced tunnel vision. Be careful about harnessing your hatred within reach of an unseen hand. Showing. Showing or brandishing is a common use of the blade. Showing works better when an effective looking weapon is employed. This is a risky visual threat that reflects fear and desperation and is generally the knifer's most defensive act short of running. However, this is not always the case. Showing a blade may be the prelude to an attack, an attempt to demoralize you and soften you up for the kill. This is most often the case when the blade is shown to you when you are cornered or is shown by the member of a group. I was once working with a real pack of degenerates on the night crew of a brand new mega supermarket. We were aptly named the Dirty Dozen by our dapper absentee taskmaster. At the time, I was taking three buses through the city, was experiencing back problems, and had not yet learned the local dialects and body language. So I was packing my Othello in my back pocket concealed by a draped bandana or a flannel shirt wrapped around the waist. This was obviously not an effective concealment method because at least one of my coworkers knew I was armed. We were in the lunchroom with two deli girls when Jet, the 300-pound porter, walked through to the bathroom where it was his habit to perch, grunt, and cheer himself on as he hollered for Mole, an 80-pound midget, to come and assist him. Mole normally took this kind of abuse in stride, but he was in love with a hot dog girl. In an attempt to impress her, Mole grabbed his trusty case cutter, kicked open the men's room door, kicked open the stall door, and said, Shut up! This was followed by the sound of his case cutter clattering across the floor and Jet's voice booming with laughter. Mole marched out of the men's room in a rage, walked up to where I was seated next to his beloved, looked me square in the eye, held out his hand, and demanded, Give me your knife! I drew the utility knife and held it out. He shook his head, pointed to my right hip, and said, No, the big one. I looked at my partner, Nate, who knew these guys well, and he gave me the go-ahead. When I pulled the Othello from his, its sheath, one of the guys said, That's illegal. Mole, who bathed infrequently, licked his crusty lips and worked his fingers expectantly. When I fully deployed the blade, the hot dog girl screamed and jumped off her seat. The room went silent as Nate corrected the earlier commentator by remarking, No, that's ridiculous. As I flipped the blade around to hand it over hilt first, Mole stood before me like a prince ready to receive the royal scepter of power. Right hand extended, eyes wide and bulging, body perched tensely on the tips of his little toes.